Good afternoon. The last one is the one I agree with, the only one of John's sentiments that I agree with. <laughs> uh, good afternoon. I, I, I really want to say thank you to everyone here, both for coming and for, to Maureen and the Centre for hosting uh, me and for uh, allowing us to have this discussion. Because regrettably, HIV is moving off the radar screens of many people. Uh, which should not be moving off. I want to start by reading a short bit from what I think, and I've just told John, is the most important book, I think, on my list, written in the last 10 years in South Africa. It's about a DJ, a young man, who uh, died of AIDS-related illnesses, and his name is Fana Kaba. And it's very, very important, not simply for the AIDS denialism, but also for for understanding the deep problems of prevention, of treatment, of culture, of tradition, of aspiration of young people in South Africa and I suppose globally as well. Fana Kaba died a horrible death. The HIV virus had destroyed his brain, leaving him demented and hallucinatory. He could no longer move his arms or legs. He could neither defecate nor urinate. The colostomy bag attached to his bowel to drain his waste was leaking blood. Pus seeped from the wound left by the operation to remove his intestines. A vast bed sore had eaten away his right buttock. More bed sores festered on his back, hips, ankles and elbows. It must have been a relief to him when at 12.10 on January 14, 2004, he finally stopped breathing. When all of us gather here, I'm very proud to say that the, it's critical to rediscover tradition. And the tradition I would like to go back to, and I believe that all of us are part of, is a tradition of anti-prejudice, a pro-feminist tradition, a pro-human rights tradition, which of course includes pro-equality tradition in, in relation particularly to race, a tradition that is pro-freedom, and a tradition that is, for me, above all, pro-working class and pro-poor. And that tradition that I believe all of us can look back to is the subject of a very beautiful book, which is about the abolitionist movement, the movement to abolish slavery, uh, by Adam Hochschild recently, called Bury the Chains, where he writes about Quakers, workers, students, women, society ladies like myself, business people, former slaves, and he says, the small group of people not only helped to end one of the worst human injustices in the most powerful empire of its time, they also forge virtually every important tool used by citizen movements today. I, of course, left out in democratic countries because I think they're the tools that we use even in countries where there is no democracy, such as the people of Zimbabwe, of Swaziland, of Belarus, and so on, and also in parts of the United States. Many of you will know, as John said, 
the treatment action campaigns work on drug companies, and my colleague Richard Pithouse is here, and he would remember 2000. We started on the premise, as all of us should, that everyone has the right to life and to dignity. No amount of cost-effective studies from Chicago's economics department will be able to tell us whether we have access to health or to life. The most important question is that we all need to ground ourselves in the moral tradition that everyone has the right to life and to dignity. One of the most important obstacles, or the greatest obstacles, to human health, we know, is the health industry, and in particular the pharmaceutical industry. The struggle that we and many of our allies locally and globally participated in to lower the price of medicines was a critical one. And I want to take you through some of these struggles to show why the importance of, what the importance of civil society has been, but particularly of individuals claiming their citizenship. The medicines I take today cost me 45 US dollars. It costs our state $20 to provide free to people in the public sector. When we started our campaign, it cost 1,500 US dollars a month. That is an impossible amount for more than 90% of South Africans to pay. In fact, someone who's, who, who is a remarkable South African and someone from whom I learned an enormous amount, Judge Edwin Cameron, who lives with HIV, I remember when he became a judge and when he first went on to medication, we as his friends had to collect money to ensure that he could have access to medicines without having to sell his house. And so it's not only poor people who are affected by this, it's not only working class people, but it's every citizen in the world that is affected by unfair, unjust pricing of all forms of medication. Your own pensioners having to cross borders to Mexico and to Canada, having to access medicines. People in the inner cities here without access. It's part of the problem of the health industry, but particularly the pharmaceutical industry. I want to tell you about a drug called fluconazole, which those of you who study medicine would be very aware of. It's a drug used to treat an opportunistic infection. And critically for us, it was a drug that our government had to stop giving patients in hospitals. The two major illnesses which people get, people with HIV get, when you, when, 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 when you have AIDS. And one is esophageal thrush. It's a thrush, it's a fungal infection that goes into the throat. Babies have it on their tongues uh, very often. Most women here will know that it's uh, commonly, uh, in women, it's vaginal thrush. But with people with HIV, it goes onto your tongue, goes into your throat, goes into your esophagus, prevents you from swallowing, prevents you from eating, and eventually leads to death. The other illness is a fungal infection of the brain called cryptococcal meningitis. And probably most people with HIV who do not have access to treatment, if they don't succumb to TB before, they will succumb to cryptococcal meningitis. And sometimes people have both, uh, like my cousin did when, 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 just before she died. In October, in, in December 1998, when I had systemic thrush, esophageal thrush, it cost 25 US dollars for a single 200 milligram capsule of fluconazole. Tax mobilization made it possible 
for us to import illegally the same generic bioequivalent, good quality, WHO-approved, MSF-used, and we checked out whether there was slave, slave labor involved in Thailand. I was there personally to check that there wasn't cheap labor involved, and it cost us 30 US cents for the same pill. Now, there's a person who we commemorate for that. His name is Christopher Maraca. We named our defiance campaign against unjust patent laws after him. He came from Transkai, which is rural Transkai, which is part of the Eastern Cape province. And Christopher had been able to go to our democratic parliament on the 10th of May 2000 to appeal to our government to issue compulsory licenses against Pfizer. Christopher had systemic thrush. He could barely speak when he addressed our parliament. But it was so bad that the funguses were all over his body. He died in July that year. His wife, Nonsikilelo Zvedala, the only, she was sicker. She could not accompany him on the 10th of May 2000. She could not accompany him to the, to the, to the parliament to give evidence because she was much sicker than he was. Just to give you an idea of how sick she was, HIV markers, a viral load, and a CD4 count. An ordinary CD4 count between 800 and 1,200, a viral load measurement. I'll talk about that in a second. Her CD4 count, instead of being 800 or 1,200, was 14. Her viral load was 2 million for a teaspoon of, if you take a teaspoon of blood, measuring it in, in there, you'd find 2 million copies of the virus. She was desperately sick. The only way in which she got onto medication was to be able to access a clinical trial. And that is how she got onto AZT, Nevirapine, and Lamivudine, three drugs that I'm on at the moment. But because she, her disease had progressed so far, she had to have a blood, she had to have a serious blood transfusion and a lot, and she had a lot of liver problems. She recovered. Her son, who was then 12 years old, is now 17 years old and capable of looking after himself. And she's still alive to see her son. She gave her name to a complaint that we laid to the Competition Commission. Now, when I say we, I mean treatment action campaign. We were supported by doctors and nurses, but more importantly, the labor movement, the churches, everyone supported us. And even in some instances, though quietly and never publicly, even business in the private sector itself. And we went to the Competition Commission because in law, uh, there are different routes you can take, and we decided to complain to our Competition Commission. And the Competition Commission ruled that GlaxoSmithKline, now I'll just give you an idea, GlaxoSmithKline tried to pass its monopoly, you call it patents, we call it patents, uh, its patent to a South African generic manufacturer called Aspen Pharmacare. And what they did with that uh, patent is they, they said to, to Aspen Pharmacare, you can only manufacture medicines for the public sector and you have to pay us 30% royalty. Equally importantly, you are not allowed to export. And very importantly, you're not allowed to sell in the private sector. 
which is where most of the money is made. So critically, for all of us, this was a really bad transfer of the monopoly. It wasn't, it wasn't generic, manu, uh, g- generic competition. And we pointed out that to them. The outcome of the Competition Commission, the outcome of that case, was that GlaxoSmithKline and Beringer Ingelheim had to issue four to five licenses to a range of generic manufacturers that allowed for, for competition between the companies. And it's critical for us that it should neither be, we should neither venerate generic companies nor brand name companies, nor state companies for that matter. The critical question for us is to ensure a regular supply of critical medicines to people. You need as much competition as possible to keep the price down because this could be a captive market. And secondly, so competition is a critical factor in it. Um, And the second element is a regular supply. One of the people was Paul I.E. He was a policeman. I'm not using his last name because he wasn't open about his HIV status. And his wife came to, on the 10th of December in 2001. And he died before that judgment came through. And he'd gone on to medicines too late. But at every step of the way, our work has been based on community organization, on the solidarity of ordinary people on the solidarity of people. Many people here are familiar with the work of TAC. You all know that TAC has 80% of our members are unemployed. 70% of our members are women. The vast majority of our members are aged between 16 and 24. I'll come to that, to why that is so in a little while later. But if we to talk about access to medicines, it is critical to remember that the drug companies and the manner in which they have ruled the roost. When we start attack, all of us, we imagined that the strongest obstacle or the biggest obstacle, the largest obstacle, the most insurmountable obstacle would be the drug companies. Sadly, it didn't turn out to be that because that would have been easy. And I'm still saying that drug companies still remain a problem I was just having a discussion with someone from the Student Global AIDS Campaign, which every student should join, uh, in addition to joining the campaign for national health insurance in the United States. Critical for us is second-line and third-line drugs should still be made available. But the major problem was not the drug companies. It was our own government. And there are many, many reasons that people forward for why we have state-sponsored AIDS denialism in South Africa. And by state-sponsored AIDS denialism, I'm not denying that there are other factors which hamper access to prevention and access to treatment. But by state-sponsored AIDS denialism, for us, the critical question is what the state is doing to undermine prevention and to undermine treatment in our country. Last Friday, as we were coming across on on the plane, I showed Richard Pithouse a judgment, and the judgment read, which was a judgment last Friday in in our high courts, the decision by the Minister of Health, the National Department of Health, the government amounted to a conscious, deliberate, and informed policy to sacrifice the life of babies that would contract HIV AIDS because their mothers were not treated with AZT. 
in order to save the expense that would have had to be incurred. I want to take you back to 11 September 2001. On that day, my colleague Sipo Mtati and I went to visit the Archbishop of Cape Town, Njongonkulu Ndungani, a really good man. And we went to him and we asked him if he would go and pray with a five-year-old girl, Sibongile Mazeka. She had seen her aunt, Constance Mashlangu, look at television when there was some tech toy-toying on the, on the television. And she asked her uh, 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 aunt, because her mum had passed away, why are you watching that? She said, those are people who have HIV like you, my dear. And she said, can you invite them to my fifth birthday and tell them they must bring these T-shirts? And of course, TAC uh, in, in, in Guguletu organized, helped organize her fifth birthday party, and there was a nice piece in, in, in the newspaper about it. But on 11 September 2001, while we were at the archbishops, there were two phone calls, one about the United States to him and one to us saying that she'd passed away. And there is no question that what happened in the United States on 11 September 2001, I'm a rationalist. I'm from the Enlightenment. I am skeptical when it comes to all sorts of studies that John does. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm a deep skeptic, and I think his studies are very valuable to assist the Enlightenment project only. <laughs> but critical for me was that on that day, there was a signal sent to the world in many different ways that allowed for the emergence of genuine forces of anti-Enlightenment, forces of prejudice, forces of religious intolerance, forces of hatred, forces that are anti-women, forces that are anti-health, forces that are anti-freedom masquerading in the name of freedom. And that goes both for Osama bin Laden and George Bush. And so critically, there's no question that at that time the world attention correctly focused where it had to be. But on that day, 8,000 people died in poor countries of AIDS-related illnesses. And there is no monument to them. There will be no freedom tower to them unless we struggle and unless we save people who continue to die. Now, <clears throat> Sibong Mazeka got her aunt, gave one of the most remarkable affidavits that speaks to economics of HIV. It speaks to how she, as a domestic worker, the, the aunt, lost her work because she had to look constantly after this baby. It spoke of how when, when over the last year of her life, this young baby had to, a child, infant, not infant, child, she was five years old, had to admit it 13 times to an in intensive care unit. And every time it cost her 70 rand, the equivalent of about $10, someone who was earning no money, to travel to the nearest hospital or to get uh, transport from neighbors and so on. The importance of understanding the impact of HIV on household economies can't be underestimated. But it took a constitutional court order to help reverse government's obstinacy and state-sponsored AIDS denial. When that judge wrote last Friday that it was expense, 
he was wrong. It was deep irrationality which is sponsored by our president, in which our president is using not simply uh, the ambiguous language that all Stalinists use when they're in power. He hasn't the courage to say publicly, I'm an AIDS denialist. He says this privately. And so critically for us, the question has to be, what is driving and how do we end the state-sponsored HIV, denial, uh, HIV denialism? In 2003, as John alluded, TAC, after many years of pickets, memoranda, letters, media blitzes, marches, we decided to engage in civil disobedience. Now, critically for us, unlike many of our friends and, and allies on the left, we recognize the legitimacy of the state. We think it needs, it needs to be transformed. There's serious elements, whether it's in the police, in the army, and so on. It requires serious transformation. But we recognize the legitimacy of the state. We also recognize that within the state, it is possible to force a better life, whether it's in housing, in education, in water, or so on, to force the state to take its responsibility seri seriously. But we had to end on a we had to enter, enter a round of civil disobedience. Now, critically for all of us, it was a difficult decision. And at that time, 600 people a day were dying in South Africa. Today, we have 900 deaths a day in our country. We had, last year, 1,500 new infections a day. Let me explain to you how we, come, how we arrive at this conclusion. The most difficult study that every South African parliamentarian should have learnt was the study by Stat South Africa, which counted three million death certificates. Counted three million death certificates because our president would not believe that AIDS had become the leasing, leading cause of death among adults. So it's the only study during an AIDS epidemic in a developing country where I'm aware of where death certificates were actually counted and causes, causes of death listed. Between 1997 and 2001, there was a 47% real increase in the death rate. And I just am going to throw three facts at you, three statistics at you. In 1997, most adults died when they were 64 to 65 or 74 to 75. By 2001 and 2002, most adults were dying when they were 30 to 34. 30 to 34. And among young women, it was 25 to 29. The second critical thing to remember is that most, the, the group most affected by death in South Africa were not adults, but infants. And that children age 0 to 1, infants age, the infant mortality rate was the highest, the single largest group of age, age set of people who were dying. And remarkably, that is the only unreliable statistic in the entire cohort. And the reason for that is very simple, that children do not get birth certificates and very often, therefore, do not get death certificates. And so that's the only unreliable thing in it. And the fact is that the causes of death listed in the Stats South Africa report was the following. Tuberculosis, meningitis, pneumonia, Influenza, intestinal infections, diarrhea, all 
closely tied to AIDS-related deaths. And yet, the only thing our president said on this entire issue, the only thing he said is broad mortality indicators show that we should take the health of our nation seriously. And then he went on to say South Africa has the best AIDS program in the world. Today, because of mobilization and activism, one out of every seven South Africans who need treatment have treatment. 110,000 people in the, public health, in the public health sector have treatment through local government clinics. Now, the need is for 700,000 people to have treatment. And the problem is that government is ensuring that treatment is available mainly at tertiary hospitals, not at community level. And that puts an enormous burden on tertiary hospitals. Secondly, it makes it impossible for poor people to travel 60, 70, sometimes 200 kilometers to where they have to access treatment. In fact, the only decent minister in Mbeki's entire cabinet is our deputy health care minister, who since, since, since what I'm about to describe to you, we've not seen her publicly, speaking publicly. Nozizwe Madlala Ratledge, she took people from the Ugu district and she took the media and said, this is my constituency, this is where I live. This is where someone with cryptococcal meningitis has to get into a taxi and travel 60 kilometers, change the taxi three times, end up paying 70 rand to get to a hospital and then to be assessed over three months to make that trip eight times before they can access medication. So the program itself is set up for failure. And it's critical that public health professionals, we know that primary care is the only way of delivering it. Our health minister and our president, if they had their way, there would be no antiretrovirals unless every primary care facility has a nutritionist. Now, I know you have a worse than third world healthcare system for poor people here and even for rich people, uh, but because and I'll talk about that later. <laughs> but even in Sweden, where they have a decent healthcare system, you don't get a nutritionist at every primary care facility. So the critical question for us then is, what are the problems? Where are the blockages? Of the 110,000, most people are in the Western Cape, in Gauteng, and partially in KwaZulu-Natal. In Lusikisiki, where Medicine Sans Frontier, one of the largest rural programs, Doctors Without Borders, where they run a program, there are more people on treatment in Lusikisiki, which is the second poorest healthcare district in South Africa, than there is in the whole province of Limpopo or Mpumalanga. So there are huge provinces where state-sponsored AIDS denialism is leading to a further pa paralysis in the state bureaucracy. Because just like under apartheid, our contemporary bureaucrats are yes to Pretoria. They only say yes to Pretoria. Uh, there's an Afrikaans-speaking gentleman in the audience, uh, Gerard Skitter, and he'll know when I say Yabas or Yamanir. It's like, yes, minister. You only respond to Pretoria. So critically for us, the question has to be, how do we break this logjam? 
and what are the issues that have assisted us so far in breaking this logjam. And I quickly want to run through, through some of them. I started off by, by talking about an internationalist tradition, the tradition that Hochschild writes about. It's critical for us to understand that what happens here in Chicago affects what happens in Johannesburg. It affects what happens in Shanghai. It affects everyone everywhere. And that our first claim has to be as global citizens. No one should, and in that sense, no one, is, no one can be denied citizenship. We all have a duty to claim our global citizenship. And that citizenship includes our right to life, our right to housing, our right to education. I just want to take a quick detour before I go on to talk to you about apartheid disparities. When some of us, like John and me, when we were children, there was a marvelous liberal institution in South Africa called the South African Institute of Race Relations. Today it's a neoconservative institute. But then it used to be a fairly decent liberal, and I like that word liberal, they're decent people, very many liberals. And they used to publish a statistic every year, not the way the United States use it, the way the French use it. Uh, the, the, they published a, t a statistic every year, and they would tell you, the state spends a thousand rand on every African kid, uh, every white kid for education. It spends 800 rand on every Indian kids of Asian descent for their education. It spends 300 rand on every colored kid, mixed race kids like myself, for their education. And it spends 120 rand or 100 rand or 90 rand on an African kid. Today in our country, our state spends an equal amount on each child, or so we believe. Genuinely, the state has equaled out the expenditure on every child. But the government has a, a study which is sitting on, on grade 12 students that shows the following. Among old white schools, what are now known as Model C schools, 65, of, 65 out of every 100 12-year-olds can read, write, and count. In old colored schools, it's one out of every 100 kids who can read, write, and count. In old African schools, it's one out of every thousand. Now, that doesn't mean because I'm colored, I am 99% dumber than a white kid. That's not the reason. The real reason is the inequality. In Kailitsha, there's a marvelous PhD done by a woman who showed that in Kailitsha, a primary school, the fees per student that the school charges is 100 rand a year, which most students can't afford. In Rondebosch, the fees are 7,000 rand a year. That allows for more teachers, it allows for libraries, it allows for computers and so on. And the same inequities are in health. So it's impossible for us to deal with HIV prevention, HIV treatment, HIV care, unless we understand that if women don't have economic independence, prevention won't work. If young men who are marginalized and socially excluded do not have access, economic access and a vision of the future, one cannot expect them to stop gender-based violence. 
or violence against themselves. It's critical that all these factors be addressed in a, in a, in a proper manner. So, in ending this long ramble, what are, what are the critical questions? Research. Science has been critical to us, but not science only. We don't have decent anthropology, enough decent anthropology. There are few. We don't have decent history. There's a remarkable PhD by a guy called Mark Hunter, uh, anthropology PhD, which looked at Mandeni uh, and looked at how housing influences sexual behavior within a context over many, many hundreds of years, the transformation of how men see themselves as men and women see themselves as women. That's one of the very, very few useful anthropological studies that sheds light on how we need to deal with the HIV epidemic. But it's critical that all of us do more research in history, in politics, in anthropology, above all in science and in medicine because we need a cure. So, and that has been the bedrock of TAC work. Without such research, we would have failed and we would not have got as far as we, we have. Of course, we have deep troubles, struggles and difficulties and, and so that any organization has. But without that scientific bedrock and without a bedrock of decent research in the humanities, we would not have been able to get as far as we did. The second area of work is understanding media. When John and I and people of our generation grew up, the media didn't really matter. You issued a, a statement once every 10 years. Today, the media runs 24 hours a day. And unless we deal both with creating our independent media, but more importantly, that we find ways of influencing the official media, including Fox, uh, it's, it's critical that we, that we engage the media at all levels. Uh, with proper engagement, messages, and facts, and so on. But above all, it's community organization. It's understanding culture. The critical, and people always speak about tax use of law, but they don't ever speak about tax use of culture. And one of the most remarkable things which we do is I have a, we have a CD by a tax choir. That choir doesn't exist anymore. Some of the members died, but... Others have gone on to other things. Uh, we had a choir called the Generics. Uh, and, and, and the songs we sing, if we can't read, we have songs that educate us. If we can read a little bit, there's a poster that educates us. If we can not read or, 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 or so on, there's also drama that helps us. There are fact sheets, there are policy documents, and there are manuals and all sorts of strange things that help us. There's video that help us. So culture has been critical, but understanding the idiom of poor and working class communities, understanding the language, not in the sense of formal uh, language, has been critical to our work. And so I want to end off by saying that none of our work would have been possible without a sense of internationalism and without understanding that for every military defense institution, there's a citizen in the United States and in Britain and in Europe and throughout Africa who supports what we do. For every drug company, there are people here who suffer and who are potential allies, and there are people here who have helped. And so with this Consumer Project on Technology, Jamie Love, 
Nader man, uh, whether it is uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, whether it's ACT UP, whether it's the Student Global AIDS Campaign, there are many, many, many organizations and individuals who contributed and made it possible to roll back and hold accountable drug companies. And I believe that we can do that in the 21st century. One of the most critical things that we have to do as global citizens is hold corporations accountable. You can't simply have a World Trade Organization. You have to have a World Trade Court. Where's justice for the people in Bhopal? Where's justice for the asbestos victims? Where's justice for the people who suffer environmental degradation? And so it's critical for us in our work to address that. And as you hear, the word critical is one of my favorite ones. So I want to say thank you to everyone. And I want to ask all of you to join the campaign at the United Nations General Assembly. Our government has excluded TAC from the list. But to join the campaign to get Taubo Mbeki to speak the truth about AIDS. 900 deaths a day is unacceptable. It's a holocaust against poor people. 1,500 new infections a day is unacceptable. It's a burden on the individual. It limits their right to life. It will be a burden on their community and their family. We have a huge job to do. If we don't get it right in South Africa, Brazil, India, China, Russia, if we don't get it right in those countries, then... I think the 21st century will be very, very difficult for all of us. Thank you.